Well, hi there, and welcome to the Green Divas Radio Show. I'm your host, Green Diva Meg, and I'll be with you for the next almost hour. Um, today, as I'm recording this, it is International Women's Day. Of course, every day should be Women's Day, right? Just saying. But I do want to ride the wave, even though you're probably hearing this after that date. So in honor of that, I want to open this show. I've been opening most of the shows with some kind of poem or quote or whatever. But I found a poem today to honor Green Divas, my sisters around the globe. This poem by Anne Sexton called Her Kind. I have gone out, a possessed witch, haunting the black air, braver at night, dreaming evil. I have done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered, out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman, quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods. Fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages gone by, learning the last bright roots, survivor where your flames still bite my thigh and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Boom. Okay, so before we get into the lineup of this really butt-kicking cool show, I want to just say this is what's going on on thegreendivas.com. Let you know, because you're going to want to go there and check this out. Green Diva Jenny G. Perry does a funny and candid post about being a slacker mom, about being okay with that and how parents and why parents should not only give themselves a bit of a break, but most importantly, give other parents a break. Don't judge, right? Don't judge people. I posted my favorite delicious and super easy garlic lemon rice recipe, which is a staple in this household. And there's other stuff going on, but I just wanted to highlight a couple of couple of fun things right up front. Okay, drum roll, please. Brrr, I got a chance to speak to Josh Fox. I am such a fangirl. I love this man's work. He's a filmmaker, environmental activist. He crisscrossed across this country, lighting up faucets to expose a fracking nightmare in his films Gasland and Gasland 2. His newest film, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, is, it's a marvel's mouthful, but ultimately an optimistic view of humanity, resilience, and our ability to adapt to this changing world. It's a fun interview. Please check it out. Green Divas Eco Style. We talked to Ashley Piper, who's a TV personality and eco lifestyle expert. She talks to us about becoming a more mindful fashionista by creating a capsule wardrobe. And I know you're asking, what's a capsule wardrobe? And I'm telling you, you're going to have to listen to that segment. Uh, Green Divas Heart Wildlife, we do, we do. And Lori Ann Bird uh, from the Center for Biological Diversity talks about endangered species. We have an inspired Green Divas with Dr. Heidi Hunter, who talks about eco-grief. 
And it's kind of, you know, interesting because really the antidote to eco grief is probably Josh Fox's new film, right? How to let go of the world and love all the things climate can't change. Just saying. So before I launch into the show, I just want to say I hope we can get interactive out there. If you're not following us already, please check us out on Twitter and Instagram at The Green Divas. Me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Green Diva Meg. And of course on Facebook, The Green Divas Radio Show and Green Diva Meg. Of course, we have Pinterest and YouTube and I'm screwing around on Tumblr a little bit. I think I'm going to start a Snapchat. I don't know. It's it's all kind of crazy, right? But I do love interacting with all of you, so I'm hoping you will find us out there. Okay, so let's just get to it. Here's the rest of this awesome show. Please enjoy. The EPA standard for the amount of mercury that is a safe level in the Great Lakes is 1.3 parts per trillion. So why is one of the biggest oil companies allowed to discharge 20 times that amount into the water? More on that after this. Everyone wants to be a part of the green movement, and that's a great thing. Going green takes on a whole new meaning when you add tall grass beef to your family's dinner table. It's tender and juicy, and since the cattle graze on the natural grasslands of Kansas, it's also loaded with essential fatty acids and omega-3s that regular grain-fed beef lacks. It's good for you and your family and good for the earth. For more information and to order tall grass beef online, go to www.tallgrassbeef.com. A proposed new state permit for BP's oil refinery in Whiting, Indiana, would allow the company to dump wastewater used in the refining process with an annual average of 23.1 parts per trillion of mercury. After being cited and fined in 2007, BP agreed to clean up its act. But six years later, there has been little or no progress. One of the most toxic forms of the metal is called methylmercury because it accumulates in the food chain, working its way from bacteria to fish to humans. And it's all tied back to oil. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth Matters. No one ever said you had to give up style to be a green diva or dude. Check out this Green Diva's eco-style segment for all the latest trends in sustainable, ethical, gorgeous eco-style. Well, we have a wonderful Green Diva's eco-style segment for you with the beautiful Ashley Piper. She is, she is a TV personality. Uh, she's an eco-lifestyle expert, and she's a green diva to be sure. Hey, Ashley. <laughs> hey, how are you? I'm great. And so there was some really interesting – we had a great conversation about this topic before, so I'm hoping we can recreate some of that here. But I want you to talk to us about this trend in eco-fashion, this going towards minimalism, and this resurrection of the capsule mm-hmm. wardrobe concept, which really I've never heard of, but I'm not notoriously a fashionista, so. <laughs> well, it sounds very David Bowie-esque, right? Like something, like yeah. a time capsule yeah. or something, which I'm down with if that was the yeah. thing. But yeah, I I really, um, so I've been, like you, really interested in kind of ethical fashion and dressing for a long time, almost a decade. And 
recently, especially what I love is that there's this resurgence of minimalism. You know, people are really getting pumped up about having fewer things, having less right. stuff because they're finding life is just better when you're not, you know, uh, uh, under a mountain of things that you never <laughs> use, right? Right, right. And, and so the capsule wardrobe is, is kind of an extension of that. It's a concept that started around in the 70s. It probably started a lot earlier than that, to be fair, but um, it was popularized in the 70s. And then a, a group of kind of bloggers sort of re-energized it um, in the past few years. And the, the concept is really that every season you have a capsule wardrobe, and it can be comprised of, you know, as few as 37 pieces or as many as, you know, 50 or 60 but essentially, you plan for the season, you do a minimal amount of shopping um, to get to those 37 pieces, mm-hmm. and then that's what you wear for the next three months. So you don't do any other shopping during that time period. And I, like I don't know about you, but as I, get, I, as I get older, I don't like to shop as much anymore. Oh, I no. find it to be tough. And then, you know, with all of the, all the information we have about how fast fashion is destroying the planet and also destroying people's lives around the world who work in yeah. these factories. Yeah. Um, it's kind of refreshing to have something that's a popular trend that's telling people, oh, you know, you know, you don't need to shop all the time. You don't need to go and get the latest sparkly thing that's in the window at the store. Um, right. So, I, you know, a lot of people, both celebrities and kind of regular folks, have been engaging in these capsule wardrobes and absolutely loving it. But finding real style actually comes from what you do with things as opposed to how many things you have. The funniest part of the conversation we had before was that I realized as you were describing this, I thought, oh, my God, I've done it by default. Right. (laughs) I've done it accidentally. And only because I loathe shopping. I really hate Mm -hmm. shopping. So I do build my wardrobe about – and I try to buy – you know, pieces that are good quality, they might be a little bit more money or and, – and I right. really am trying to buy more organic, uh, sustainably made, fair trade made, you know, quality clothes that um, I can just feel really good about in, in so many mm-hmm. ways. And, and even if they are a little bit more expensive, I feel I'm okay with that and, and I wrap – Absolutely. You know, I wrap my – and it makes it simpler. I'm not standing in my closet going, huh? You know, yes, <laughs> yeah. There's there's a handful of items that that I can switch around, and it it forces me to be thoughtful in the beginning of a season. Like, okay, all right. So if I do mm-hmm. this, then you know, sometimes I have a little bit of a color theme going when I really have my act together. But you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of it's basic black or white, depending on the season. That's how I roll too. I mean, I'm definitely more. But I would dress that way if I, I would wear a lot of black and white if I had. 75 pieces or 10, you know, I mean, it's kind of, I think the studies show that most people, especially women, only wear about anywhere from 15 to 30% of their closet. So that's, and we all have those like aspirational clothes that are in the back, like we're going to wear that at some point or something we bought that was quite expensive and it just doesn't suit us, but we still hang on to it. So part of what I love to do is actually help people to go through creating a capsule wardrobe, but the first part of it is purging what you don't need anymore and helping them to find kind of appropriate spaces, whether it's a clothing swap or donating to an organization or it's, you know, consigning, finding earth-friendly options to get those clothes to better homes and make space so that they can have just the stuff they love and feel great in. Well, and then it's fun. And I'll tell you, I 
I'm a green diva of a certain age, so my weight has fluctuated a bit over the last, let's say, 10 years. And I oh, recently lost uh, almost 20 pounds. And Oh, wow. Congratulations. So I've been back in my – it's like shopping in my own closet because I haven't Ooh, I fully purged because I've been fluctuating. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, see, mm-hmm. that's the problem is I'm like, well, I need this size because, you know, you know. Anyway. Yeah. But it was kind of fun because I was unearthing all these things. I'm like, oh my god, I fit in these again! Yay! Yeah, isn't that exciting? And it was you have like, history with those clothes too, so it's kind of fun to shopping in my own closet. That. But it it also has been. It feels good to get rid of things that I know I'm not going to wear again and mm-hmm. and pare it down so that when I look at you know the the rack of sweaters, I'm like, yeah, I really like all these, so I can just grab one. I don't have to hem and haw and yeah. yeah, and that's how women in other countries get dressed. I mean, if you look at kind of more uh, fashion-efficient, like countries like Japan and France, even, yeah. where women are known to have awesome style, they're not buying a ton of stuff. Their closets are usually about a third of the size of an American closet, Yeah, yeah. Um, both spatially and with, like, what they actually have in the closet. So they're, you know, doing, like, think of a French woman and a scarf. Yeah. You know, they can do all these incredible things with one scarf, right? <laughs> and we, and that's real style yeah. is what you can do with that type of stuff. So it's a great opportunity for people. I think I just love that people are buying less. I think it's, if you're going to buy something, like you said, buy a, a, something of sterling quality, buy something that's zero waste, buy something that's secondhand, something that's been made locally, that's cruelty-free. But, um, you know, to tell people, oh, you don't have to buy so much stuff is, is yeah. really refreshing. You just never get that guidance that much. So no, I think it's pretty it, awesome. Interestingly, I think Patagonia last year or in the last couple of years had a campaign about buying less mm-hmm. where they literally were reducing the options of certain styles and saying, you know, instead of saying we're going to make eight colors in this T-shirt, Right. Um, you know, we're only going to make four colors, and but we're going to make them really good, and you're going to keep the you're going to keep it <laughs> for mm-hmm. twice as long, or it's going to have a longer life. So I, it, the whole philosophy works for me, and, and I'm pretty impressive, pro- progressive, and impressive. Yeah, and there was a there was a story that came out about a year ago of a pretty high profile fashion editor, a fashion editor of a magazine, mm. and she opted, and she has done for about five years. To pretty much develop a uniform for herself. Mm-hmm. And so every day she wears basically the same thing. Her uniform is a pair of black, kind of like cigarette pants with yeah. a white blouse and a black tie. And that's what she feels really good and most productive in. And she doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about what she's going to wear for the day. Yeah. And so she said she finds it very liberating. Um, and, and I mean, to be honest, too, like, I don't know about you, but when I was shopping a lot, I was shopping for reasons that weren't out of necessity. Yeah. Like I wasn't yeah. going to the store because I needed something. I was going to the store because I had a crappy day at work or, yeah. Yeah. you know, I wanted to, I, you know, you, we shop for a lot of emotional reasons. And I think studies show that people only shop for like utility about like 8% of the time. The rest of the time, it's an emotional reason that you're at the store. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those 8%ers, but... I love. <laughs> Good for you. I need to learn you. I need to learn your ways. <laughs> well, it's it's not for any real virtue. Other, than I just don't like shopping. It's not like because I mindfully, but I do like the concept of being more mindful in general. Um, mm-hmm. That everyone think you know think twice. Do you need that? Do you know? Is it something you're going to 
real, and I think in general, no matter w- whether you're buying clothes or accessories or books or whatever thing you're buying, I think it's a good practice to be mindful. But I love this idea of capsule, you know, the capsule wardrobe uh, because it forces you to be kind of mindful and plan and efficient, and I, it's kind of cool. It's not my style. Exactly. It's not my yeah. natural. Even though I do it by default, being organized isn't necessarily my my nature. So it's it's always good to have a little bit of guideline. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this and maybe post something about this with our podcast. Yeah, I did a piece for the chalkboard. I did a three part series uh, about hmm. a year ago, but it was essentially like um, a three part instructive series on how to take your closet from what it is now to a capsule wardrobe that really works for you. Oh, I'm gonna so look I'll, at that. I'll send you a link to that. The, so you can be capsuling with me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Ashley, and I look forward thank to speaking you. to you again soon. Oh, likewise. Thanks so much. Want to have sexy Green Diva style, too? And learn more about low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green? Visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. What do Manhattan's Waldorf Astoria, Crown Plaza, and Weston Times Square hotels have in common, aside from luxury? They have all signed on to the New York City Carbon Challenge. Director of the Mayor's Office of Sustainability, Nilda Mesa, explains. The Carbon Challenge goes across various sectors. We've got participants who commit to reducing 30% or more over the next 10 years in greenhouse gas emissions. This is the first time hotels have joined the challenge to cut building emissions, a major source of carbon pollution in the city. Our buildings and how they're operated contribute around 71% of our greenhouse gas emissions citywide. 16 hotels will play a key role in improving those numbers by cutting 32,000 metric tons of carbon pollution and saving $25 million in energy costs. Their tactics will include investing in energy efficiency and building management systems, as well as educating staff and guests. The hotels we're in it are a group of iconic hotels, so we're able to demonstrate that reducing greenhouse gas emissions is a good business practice. It helps the bottom line, and it's an important part of being a resident of New York City. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Diva's heart wildlife. Who can resist all those videos and images of adorable baby animals? But sometimes these adorable creatures really need our help. Let's celebrate wild animals, learn about them, and do what we can to help them. Well, it's been a while since we've had uh, any new wildlife, Green Divas Wildlife segments, uh, Green Divas Heart Wildlife, because we do. Um, and, and especially, we, it's been a while since we've spoken to Lori Ann Bird, who is the Environmental Health Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. And she has been with us before, and I think she's got some interesting, well, important stuff to talk about today. Hi, Lori Ann. 
Hi, how are you? I'm good. And, you know, I was looking at my notes for this and I thought, oh, bummer. But of course, the EPA apparently is not really taking endangered species into consideration when registering new pesticides, which sadly is sort of like a, well, of course, it seems logical, but it's not good. It's not, it's logical for the EPA the way they've been doing things is what I'm trying to say. It's not <laughs> logical for those of us that care about endangered species. So, or the law. <laughs> yeah, right. So so tell us, tell us what uh, what's going on with this. Well, the EPA's endangered, uh, Pesticide registration program is a deeply flawed program that some people um, will say is more akin to a rubber stamping than a rigorous scrutiny. Mm. Um, But basically, EPA um, is very efficient in very expeditiously approving the registration of new pesticides. Um, And in doing so, they do have a number of things that they must consider under our federal pesticide regulations, um, but in that they also have a responsibility to consider the impacts of pesticides on threatened and endangered species Anytime a federal agency takes any action that might affect threatened or endangered species. It has to go through an analysis and consider those effects. Okay. EPA, when doing their separate analysis of whether or not they should register a new pesticide, will identify levels of concern of the pesticides um, and determine how toxic it may or may not be to different classes of species, so vertebrates, things like that. And it will very frequently in these analyses identify very high risks to different types of species. And then it will say, okay, and that, you know, that's fine and move on and say this this should be registered. Really? Um, Like like it's, it's really like these species are expendable? Yeah, so they'll recognize that there's a risk, but then, you know, once that risk has been recognized, there's a mechanism. In our country, we have said, you know, we we will not allow species to go extinct under our watch, which is why we have the Endangered Species Act, which is 99% effective at preventing extinction if a species is protected under it. And so under the Endangered Species Act, when an agency is going to take an action, it has to consider the impacts of that action on threatened or endangered species. And EPA here is recognizing, oh, yeah, there's, there's an effect, and then they're not going through that process to make sure that our nation's most vulnerable and imperiled species are going to be spared from extinction. Um, and mm. when we raise this in comments, which we always do, they say, ah, yes, uh, that's true, but... Um, we have other priorities, but as we all know, that's not how the law works. You know, you don't get to run a red light and say, yeah, no, I know you're supposed to stop at a red light, but I have, a, you know, I have other stuff going on. So <laughs> other I'll, priorities. I'll, I'll probably stop at a red light in the future, yeah. but uh, not right now. No. Not today. <laughs> so what, I mean, what's running through my head is obviously the, the chemical or whatever industry and lobbyists are obviously infiltrating the FDA? I don't know. Um, so EPA certainly... I mean EPA, um, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Maybe um, the FDA there, too. There, I don't know. there are major issues at FDA too. We can talk about those another time. Yeah. Um, there are really major issues with how this is happening. and But we expect that the chemical industry is going to aggressively pursue registration of their product. 
we also simultaneously should be able to expect that pesticide regulators are going <laughs> to make sure that the law is upheld and that species are, yeah. the impacts to species are looked at. And that's not been happening. Okay. So we've been left with no choice but to sue. So we have five lawsuits active on um, new pesticide registrations now kind of running the gamut of different kinds of pesticides. We have two insecticides, we have an herbicide, a fungicide, and one, um, cuprous iodide, is actually an antimicrobial pesticide, oh. mm. which um, it's based on in copper, which everyone knows is incredibly toxic to fish. Um, it basically kills their, well, it basically kills their olfactory sense. Oh. And so um, if a predator is coming, they won't do anything about it. Oh. And EPA approved this so we can treat our socks with it so we can go up to 10 days without washing our socks. Oh, come on, really? <laughs> at at the, expect of, is the expense of, you know, potentially driving salmon closer to extinction. Oh, no, no, not the salmon. <laughs> They're really taking a hit these, these the last couple of years, aren't they? They really are, and we as a society have decided they're worth saving, and we've poured billions of dollars into salmon recovery, and there are some really great recovery efforts happening. And then, you know, EPA goes and approves this antimicrobial, um, you know, anti-stinky sock agent. <laughs> Get a grip, people. Wash your socks. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. So it, it's it's probably important also to let people know because you are an attorney as well and you work mm -hmm. with scientists and attorneys who are, you know, stepping up the game here uh, with what the lawsuits are interesting. Is the lawsuit from the Center for Biological Diversity or another entity? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we're on all five. Um, we have some... Some allies on some of them. Uh, some of them were on just by ourselves. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, the Green Divas are with you. I don't know what we can <laughs> do to help, but, you know, Thank you. Uh, hopefully helping to get the word out so people understand. Absolutely. And what else can people do to support uh, these endangered species that are being disregarded in this process? Well, <laughs> the best thing you can do in your own home is not to use pesticides. Yes. Um, you know, they're... We have to come to terms with the fact that not every petal on every rose is going to be perfect. And we have to allow space for biological processes to happen. So if there are spots on your rose, maybe you decide that that's okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> or maybe you can look for natural pest control. You know, right. one of so many huge um, environmental consequences can be avoided by pretty simple mechanisms. Like we all heard about the massive bumblebee kills that happened in a um, parking lot in Oregon. Mm. And that was, that was a tree tr that was treated with bee-killing pesticides for aphids. Um, yeah. You can also treat aphids with soapy water. <laughs> you can treat aphids Ladybugs, right? Ladybugs, absolutely. Um, there are so many things you can do to treat aphids, but, you know, in this instance, we had 50,000 bumblebees die because the pesticide was used. And so by not using those kinds of pesticides, by not buying the antimicrobial socks, yeah, yeah. Um, you can really help out. And, and, and is there somewhere they can go, uh, uh, maybe your site, uh, the Center for Biological Diversity, I'm not sure what the site is, uh, to find out more? Biologicaldiversity.org. There and you then go. And under programs, you can 
go to our program and scroll down, and there's some resources there. But um, there, are a, there are a lot of wonderful resources on um, how to avoid these ultra-toxic chemicals. Um, so I encourage people to just get out there and explore the wide world. Um, Thank there, you. Explore your local resources. Absolutely. Um, master Gardeners Clubs are a great place to learn about ways to avoid toxics. I, I just want to go march down to my town hall and, and ask the town to make an ordinance to just stop, just stop. Not only, you know, ask our neighbors because, like, I'm pretty careful, but my neighbors use in all kinds of chemicals. I don't even like mm-hmm. walking around there, and I walk my dog mm-hmm. by there every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want my town to not use them on the town property in the parks. Please stop. Absolutely. So. We, um, in Portland, we have a strong pesticide-free parks initiative, but our parks are not 100% pesticide-free. And then earlier this year, we actually got the city, um, Portland, Oregon, that's where I'm oh, okay. located. Yeah. We got the city to ban the bee-killing insecticides, neonicotinoids. From yes, I did see that. City land. And that's been a nationwide push. So there are great things happening in some cities, uh, but still a lot of work to do. Well, I just visited your city for the first time in December, oh. and it was very, very <laughs> rainy. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I'll be back. I'll I'll be back in the spring, maybe when it's not so rainy. Yes, please come. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Lorianne, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon about other issues to um, support our wildlife um, and have a healthier planet in general. Thanks so much, Lorianne. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Green Divas Heart Wildlife. Please visit thegreendivas.com, that's T-H-E, greendivas.com, to learn more about wildlife, nature, and a whole lot more. There are people in this world that just sparkle with an almost magical and radiant energy, leaving a wake of good stuff wherever they go. We just love meeting and talking with these folks who inspire us to be better, do better. Ooh, another wonderful, inspired Green Divas segment with... Dr. Heidi Huttner, who is among many, many things, she's an academic, she's a professor, she's a dean, she's an author, an advocate, a mother, and just a cool green diva. Um, <laughs> and we've we've talked before about ecofeminism, and um, it, it's really hard to do in ten minutes or less. But, but so we decided we would do another discussion here on eco grief. Hi, Heidi. Hi, great to be back. Yeah, and you know, when you say the topic eco grief, everybody's like, oh no, it's going to be bummer, a bummer. But it's not. I, I, no. I assure you, it's not. But let's, you want to describe what we're talking about? Sure. So um, I, I'm a cancer survivor. And my both of my my mother had cancer. She didn't actually die from cancer, but she had cancer when she died, mm. and would have died from cancer if she hadn't died from uh, other things. But um, she 
actually had two forms of cancer, and my father died from um, a metastasis to the brain from melanoma. Oh. When I and and both, you know, I was under under, I was thirty four with my mother, twenty eight with my dad, yeah. and pretty devastating. And then a year after my mother's cancer, I was diagnosed with cancer. So pretty difficult stuff. Wow, and, that's a um, lot. A lot, a lot to deal with at thirty five. So by the age of 35, I should say. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, that kind of led me on this quest to figure out why so much cancer in my own family. And I started to read all about different environmental issues, particularly toxics and radiation and pollution in our environment, why we have so much cancer. And, of course, you can't think about that without thinking about climate change and right. all the issues related to that. So, yes, I, I entered into various stages of what I call eco-grief. Yeah. And... You know, it it was very profound, um, but on, on the on the really positive side, and this is what I talk about in my TED talk, um, allowing myself to feel that and to really take it in, rather than to sort of pretend it's not there and just distract myself and not allow myself to have the 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 deep deep sense of grief and despair and sadness. Um, allowing myself to really feel that grief. Created something really quite wonderful, which is I it, it turned my whole life around, and I became, you know, an advocate as opposed to a victim. Right. And mm-hmm. felt I could. There were a lot of things I could do, not, and not just about me and what I eat. You know, I mean, right. a lot of us think about, oh, I'm going to eat well and all those sorts of things, but really in in a bigger way to yeah. help others. Um, and that is a very positive thing. And actually, I felt. And I just, and I feel it's in the in the doing. I I don't feel that grief anymore. You know, yeah. as much as I, you know, anyone who's marched, we I don't know if you did, but I I marched in the, you know, the the big climate march in New York City with half a million people, and I marched in D.C. many times with the tar sands. And I, yes, you know, these things are invigorating and fracking activism. Oh, they're energizing. York. Oh my God. Yes, very energizing. And and I'm, we've achieved so much in New York. I mean, I live in New York State, and it, just the things in the past couple of years that we've yep. done and. Through the activism, it's extremely energizing. And well, yeah, and there's nothing like yeah. The, I have like a little dose of Pete Seeger in me, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was me always too. so inspired. Oh, Even as a you know much older gentleman, he'd get out there and hold a sign, and you know. Oh, I actually got a chance to to march with him during oh. Occupy. Oh, yeah. see, and see, was, and and seeing and march, yeah, it was really very powerful. Oh my God, yeah. I've got chills. Yeah, no, it was an amazing experience. Amazing. Went to a Clearwater concert on the yes. Upper West Side, and Occupy came to us, and wow. we all of us marched uh, down to uh, yep. 67th Street or whatever it was, and, yep. and sang the whole way with Pete Seeger. It was extraordinary. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, I've got chills. I, I'm sorry I missed that episode. I did go down there a few times and do some fun stuff, but that was yeah, not... yeah. Well, this was just happened to happen. I mean, it was not planned. Yeah, yeah we yeah. were at the concert, and, and of course, I had gone down to Occupy other times, but yeah, that, that it came to the concert on the Upper West Side. Wow. and we marched together was extraordinary. Well, and, and all sort of and all the Clearwater musicians were there. Which <sighs> is, incredible yeah. yeah see that would have been really cool so, uh, so but you know they're always no matter what the grief is and and that's a whole nother huge topic but in my experience it has always been taking action when you know but i do think there is the, the almost the elizabeth kubler ross you know stages right. of grief um definitely and, but there is something extremely empowering when 
you begin to take action. Absolutely. I write about that in, in my book that I'm, I'm finishing up now um, called Inspiring Greener Minds. And I talk about the sort of stages, because I see with my students, you know, I'm a professor, and so in my classroom, we learn about these things. And students, when they first come in, can be really overwhelmed. And there's sort of a stage in the, in the, in the classroom, which, is, which, which we go through those stages, you know, that you yeah. do. But the difference, and I talk about this in my book with, with the environmental grief, is that, you know, if someone dies, they die. I mean, this is, you know, they're not going to come back. And right. you have to ultimately let go. And you do pass through the grief. But with environmental degradation, yes, there's lots and lots of losses, and we cannot bring back what's been lost. But right. there's still a future. There's still yeah. possibilities for all sorts of change. Yeah. So, you know, rather than taking a position of, well, there's nothing I can do, you know, you realize there's a lot you can do, and there's a lot yeah. we can do for the future generations and for our children and our great-grandchildren. So I, I find that very, very exciting. Well, and I, I, I suspect that, it's happened with me, and I know it's happened to others. And we've had some a similar conversation with um, Eco Boomer. What is it, Boomer Warrior? I can't I can't think of his title. But we talked about uh, climate depression with climate mm-hmm. scientists in particular, and people mm-hmm. who are active in the field or educators like yourself. But uh, and I had a theory. Oh, so I, I believe that when I came to my my awakening with this and my call to action, it was different than yours, for instance. Like you're an academic and educator and you're funneling mm-hmm. it through a lot of your writing and whatnot. Me, I, I, I started you know, working in media and trying to create a platform for right. voices like yours. And other people have other things, whether it's you know, they get really passionate about the food system or right. uh, energy and alternative energy. Everybody finds their, their way. Their action and their their right. way of taking action, and it's kind of cool. They do, and I think I think that's really key that you need to find your own the thing that turns you on and makes you excited, and doesn't work to sort of plug yourself into someone else's way of doing it. Right. Um, you know, and and people change over time. And I've, I'm a big follower of Sandra Steingraber and a, you know a friend, and mm. I've I've you know first it was just sort of. Uh, a fan, you know, reading her books and teaching them in my classes. And right. and then I've gotten to know her over the years. And she shifted from, and she talks about this, she shifted from being a scientist in the lab to being um, a writer for the general public mm-hmm. to realizing that just writing wasn't enough, that we had all the information that was pretty clear that these toxics are causing diseases and all kinds of problems and health health issues. But and she she had to get out there and, and put her body in the line. And so now she's, you know, regularly protesting and deeply engaged in, in an activism. So, you know, people, people change, they evolve. They get they have to find their own um, there are artists, there are environmental artists. That's the way, that's their voice. Right. Yes, um, exactly, exactly. People go into science or they become a doctor. I mean, because right. I, I, I see with my students, you know, they come to me and they might go to environment. They might go to law school. They might become. They might go into business and right. be an advocate right. there. So, right. well, it's needed everywhere, and that's it is. that. And that's why it's so great that I get to speak to so many different people that have been called into all these different ways of focusing that energy. Exactly. Um, and I just want to encourage folks to go to Heidi Hutner H U T N E R dot com. 
Heidi has a wonderful wealth of information among her own articles, books, talks, um, makes a lot of recommendations for us on on this and other issues related. And I am looking forward to having a, an article from her for the Green Divas as well. Yes, definitely. And and you must go find her TED Talk. It's very powerful. It's empowering and inspiring. So uh, thank, thank you so you. much for your time, Heidi, and all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Megan. It's been an honor, honor to talk with you. We hope you're feeling the sparkle. Go out there and light up the world. As Dante said, even a little spark may burst a flame. For more inspiration, visit thegreendivas.com and listen for this and other shows on gdgdradio.com. I'm like just a gushing fangirl over here, but I want to welcome Josh, Josh Fox. And if you don't know Josh Fox, get out from under your rock and go watch Gasland and Gasland 2. Um, and, and, and it's really th- his work that sparked such a movement against fracking because it helped people begin to understand what was really happening on the front lines in people's homes, in communities in their faucets because, of course, uh, you know, the government was saying otherwise, no, fracking's not a problem. There's no problem. And, and Josh is like, um, but hello, this guy's hose is on fire. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge admirer of his work. Very, very Thank glad you. you could take the time to talk to us. So you're busy. Thank you so much for saying that. That's wonderful. Oh, of course. So You've been busy. I know you've got another film coming out, uh, the title of which is long, but I'm going to try to do it, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, which I think Beautifully is... done. Beautifully done. Almost, yeah. Almost. <laughs> it's a long title, but it's, I think, going to be memorable for people, yes. How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. Well, it's important. I mean, I I have not been able to see any bits of the film yet, but the title alone is so descriptive, especially on the heels of, you know, the very hard and and somewhat depressing work that that you had to do (laughs) for the Gaslands. Well, uh, climate change is not an easy subject. It's a very daunting, primarily because we are so far behind in our work addressing climate change as a country. The United States um, has fallen prey to the fossil fuel industry in our political system. And uh, that means most of the politicians that you elect, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, um, are on the take for the fossil fuel industry, and they do not um, want action to get us off of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels, which we have done for 100 years or more, has contributed to uh, global warming. When we burn fossil fuels, we put carbon dioxide and methane and a whole host of other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and that acts as a blanket on the top of the atmosphere and traps heat. Um, When that heat is trapped, it doesn't radiate back out into space, and the planet loses its, its balance. The planet has achieved a very delicate balance over 10,000 years, where the temperature never varied uh, more than a degree. Right. And that uh, 
was called the Hawk. It was the it was the stable climatic regime in which civilization was born. We have left that period. Uh, we have left the Holocene, and we're in something different, which a lot of people refer to as the Anthropocene, right. the era of humans. And what does that mean? That means we've warmed the climate already by one degree. We're already yeah. one degree off, one yeah. degree Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Right. So that's really significant. If you were to warm up your freezer, uh, for example, by you know, one degree Celsius, everything in your freezer would start to melt and go bad. So one degree in this case is extraordinarily significant. Um, what does that mean? It means everything on Earth has already started to melt. The Greenland yeah. ice sheets, there are huge glaciers in the poles that are, that are melting, that have compromised their integrity, and that means we're in for a certain amount of sea level rise. Right. Uh, when the sea level rises, when we no longer have a stable coastline, it makes our life in the coastal cities, particularly New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, D.C., Charleston, Miami, yeah. um, it, it imperils the future of those cities absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, and we are already within a really significant danger zone because as carbon dioxide and methane are in the atmosphere, they continue to warm the earth for decades into the future. Yeah. So we've already at one degree, and we've put enough carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere that will warm us for the next 30 or 40 years, bringing us to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we're already at 1.5 degrees. Right. Um, and that's really perilous, considering that at two degrees, we get um, approximately between five and nine meters of sea level rise. So that means when we hit two degrees, if we were to hit two degrees, and we're already very much on track for two degrees, yeah. we'd lose our coastal cities. We yeah. see droughts and floods. We see uh, famine. We see a uh, refugee crisis in the hundreds of millions of people as uh, rising sea refugees swarm international boundaries. We see um, we lose 20 to, or 30 to 50% of all the species right. on the planet uh, die because they're outside of the range of their thermal tolerance. So we're talking about mass havoc at two degrees. We cannot reach two degrees, and we're already at 1.5, which means we have to go towards 100% renewable energy as fast as possible. Yeah, and that and that does include like no fracking under no circumstances. <laughs> no fracking, fracking under no circumstances, and power plants yeah. and pipelines yeah. under yeah. no circumstances. What we're doing right now is we're taking this new film. It's you know how to let go of the world and love all the things climate can't change. We're bringing it on the road. We're taking it all across America, specifically to communities that are battling huge fossil fuel infrastructure projects. Brilliant. Um, on the 14th, we're going to be showing that in Manhattanville College uh, to help fight against the Algonquin pipeline, the AIM pipeline, right. which threatens to run right past Indian Point, yep. which threatens to bring... Uh, uh, more fracking to New York and Pennsylvania. Yeah. And there are other pipelines across New York, the Constitution Pipeline, uh, the Millennium Pipeline, um, the yeah. Pilgrim Pipeline. There are pipelines that are being proposed for all across this state. Yeah. Even though New York has banned fracking, this is the fracking fight of the future. If we go ahead and build these pipelines and power plants, compressor stations, and LNG terminals, we will first of all, be facing the frackers all over again in our backyards. Yeah. But then we're also engendering this process of sea level rise, which threatens to swamp New York, Long Island, all of our coasts. Well, um, and, and So we simply cannot build those. And we're, we're, we're going out there with this film to, to meet the community, talk to people, get organized, get excited, get enthusiastic, 
and start to battle these uh, fossil fuel projects and urge Governor Cuomo and urge the, the nation yeah. to adopt solar and wind as well, their primary uh, electricity and power generation source. Well, because New York, um, it's in my backyard as well. I'm in New Jersey, but it is a microcosm for what's happening. And in fact, New York is the, the more positive microcosm because yes. in other places – uh, they don't have Governor Cuomo that has right. put on some brakes. They don't have, you know, they, they have maybe they're in Texas and they're ruled by um, the oil and gas industry. So or, or well, in Australia. Pollution, pollution knows no state lines. Uh, you know, neither does climate change. It affects everyone. But you're right. Governor Cuomo has done something remarkable in, in politics today. He actually listened to science yeah. and didn't listen to the fossil fuel industry. As simple as that sounds, it was quite a bo- brave and heroic and example-setting act for governors across America. What Governor Cuomo did was his health department said unequivocally, my kids should not live anywhere near fracking sites, anywhere near fracking wells. Yeah. The health department came out and said, this is unsafe for our citizens. And what does that mean? That means that um, if my kids can't live next to it, then nobody's kids in the state. So yeah. what we're asking them to do is not only reject the fracking process in their own backyard in New York State, but also not to subject other states, children from around the United States, to the same ills. It would yeah. be incredibly hypocritical yeah. if we were to say in New York, oh, we're not going to do fracking, and then we took fracked gas from Pennsylvania or West Virginia right. Uh, right. or the surrounding area, and that's what's at stake here. What's at stake here is we must reject fossil fuel uh, uh, and, and frack gas in particular as a means of uh, electricity generation when we know we have much better options yes. and we have options that will not uh, cause these kinds of dangerous climate change, uh, toxic well, pollution, etc. So a quick follow-up question to Gasland 2. Mm-hmm. How's, how's your backyard in um, Pennsylvania? Is it still frack-free? <laughs> yes. Uh, thankfully, my, where I live in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, where my parents' house is, um, I, I should say, because uh, I also live in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a New Yorker and a Pennsylvanian. Very um, cool. But, but new, you know, that part of PA is actually controlled by the Delaware River Basin. It's part of the watershed. Yeah. Um, so it's not Pennsylvania that determines the rules. It's a five-member body that determines the rules for that area. So thankfully, that means um, in 2011, we created a political moratorium. Uh, citizens really did it. It was the grassroots movement that put enormous pressure on the Delaware River Basin Commission, and that created uh, you know, so much pressure that they said no fracking in the river basin. In fact, the new film opens uh, with me celebrating that victory. All right. um, and it uh, literally opens with a victory dance, and I hope people come and watch that because it's really a lot of fun. <laughs> and um, can, I but, say, but, can I say that I loved your uh, playing the banjo throughout the films? Oh, well, thank you. There's banjo playing in this film. Uh, okay. But what I realized is that um, even though the Delaware River Basin can be saved, from fracking, we are still subject to climate change. Yes. And uh, if you look at the woods in my backyard, the hemlock forests, which hemlocks, hemlock trees are a keystone species. They're pine trees there. Um, Hemlocks are now dying from a a hemlock blight, which is a direct result of warming. Uh, The woolly adelgid, uh, a parasite that attacks hemlock trees, is advancing up the coast every year as it gets warmer and warmer and warmer, going all the way from 
uh, Virginia all the way up to Maine, our great iconic hemlock forest yeah. of the East Coast will die yeah. because of climate change. And I realized that, and uh, just a few months after that realization, that I couldn't just stay at home and celebrate my victory, New York <laughs> City got hit by Hurricane Sandy. Yes. And Hurricane Sandy was this, uh, in New Jersey, and uh, oh, yeah. of course Long Island and the whole coast. But, we lost two cars you know, in that one. Yeah, well, you know, cars is one thing, but also New Yorkers drowned in their own homes. The yeah. water rushed in so yes. fast. Yes. And this was a harbinger of things to come if we don't stop climate change. So the wake-up call about how this isn't just about protecting my backyard from fracking, right. but it's about everybody. Yes. And it's about the whole world, and it's about climate change. That was the thing that set me on the journey for this new film. And this new film goes all over the world. It takes me to uh, six continents. Wow. 12 countries, um, uh, working with the indigenous environmental monitors in the Amazon, finding oil spills in the deepest Amazon, to uh, the Pacific climate warriors and the great nations in the South Pacific, Samoa, yeah. Fiji, Vanuatu, battling against Australian coal. Uh, there's a, literally a battle sequence in the film where the, uh, uh, the canoes and uh, of the traditional canoes of the uh, Pacific climate warriors blockade ginormous coal ships that are the size of the Empire oh, State wow. Building, um, Africa to solar developments, uh, China to meet with people speaking out against coal and against the human rights violations in China. They're just remarkable, amazing people who are exemplars of what we call all the things climate can't change. And all the things that climate can't change is our will yeah. to uh, develop and appreciate and strengthen a value structure um, which is different than the one in the world today, a value structure based on human rights, democracy, generosity, community, um, you know, creativity, innovation, courage, love, civil disobedience. Oh. These are the things that climate can't change, um, and those are what we're calling people to. So it actually ends up, even though it's an incredibly dark subject, I think it, it becomes an incredibly inspiring film, um, and people literally get up and dance in the aisles at the end of this movie. So, oh, well, we you know, it. we're really excited about bringing it uh, in this context where we have to galvanize a fight against these pipelines. Well, I'm very excited about it because we do need it. We've done several uh, segments over the last year or two about climate depression, about people mm. who, the scientists yeah. and the people like us who are reporting on these things. Yeah. It's easy to get caught in that, that sort of, you know, the gates of hell and we're going there fast. So, well, depression is a consequence of feeling isolated. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah. why we want people to watch the film in this context. You yep. know, the film will be in theaters. The film will go on HBO in the summertime. What we want is people to come out and watch it with their community so they don't feel that depression. They don't feel that isolation. Right. If you're depressed, it's because you feel alone. Yeah. You know, this is the way out of that is not to just deny all of this and shove it aside. The way out of this is to fight, but to fight alongside of your neighbors and to fight alongside of your community. Some of the most important relationships and best bonds that I've ever had in my life have come out of yeah. that. And that's an incredibly rewarding and positive experience. Well, and I think there there's something to be said, and it sounds like it really comes up in the film, the resilience that people have and the human yeah. spirit of, of goodness that comes through when we bond together to find you know, to adapt and to find solutions, right? Yes, yes. And that is what we're trying to say. Oh. We need... Yay! We need to stick together on this, and this is our big effort. It's called the Let Go and Love Tour, for how to let go of the world and love all the things climate can't change. We're running a Kickstarter right now okay. um, because we are 
raising money to bring the film. The film will be free for people to watch. Nice. Uh, uh, and you can also donate, of course, to your local groups. But um, we're talking about um, raising money to keep us up on this activist effort. And that's at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y backslash let go and love. It's really simple. Bitly backslash. Bitly backslash sounds like a Disney character. <laughs> Bitly backslash let go and love. Um, or go to the Kickstarter camp page and put in uh, how to let go of the world or let go and love tour. Please. We need, um, we have a $50,000 to make up in the next two weeks. Uh, we really need support there. All right, then. I'm, I'm on it, and we'll definitely do what we thank can you. to get the word out there. And uh, thank, you. thank you so much for your time today, Josh. I appreciate it, and we hope to see everybody out on the 14th. Uh, the, all the information is at our website, which is www.howtoletgomovie.com. www.howtoletgomovie.com. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Green Divas Radio Show. Listen to the latest Green Divas shows every day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on GDGD Radio at GDGDRadio.com or get the GDGD Radio app for free. Or access our huge catalog of podcasts on demand on your favorite podcast network, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and of course, along with all kinds of great posts about living a deeper shade of green on TheGreenDivas.com. That's T-H-E, Green Divas. Dot com.